Wall Spencer is an entrepreneur, traveler, and storyteller. His path has taken him from Stanford University to the dot-com boom and through 33 countries on six continents. Along the way, his passion for personal growth led him into a world of men's personal development and transformation, which he calls the Renaissance. We all walk around every day as if every moment in our life is full of meaning. Science would say nothing has meaning at all. It's all accidents. Meanwhile, all of us walk around feeling that our lives are full of meaning. And when you take a man and you give his life meaning, it brings men to life. Today, he hosts the Renaissance of Men podcast, where he conducts extended interviews, thought leaders, both men and women, working towards a great reconciliation of the sexes. So if a man can't serve his wife, for example, by being a man who embodies a man worthy of her respect, he is also failing. Will also hosts online groups and mentors men to become the best versions of themselves through discipline and self-knowledge. What's the biggest thing that people are trying to silence you on or with at the moment? And what do you continually to refuse to be silenced about? That's a great question. Before we begin today's episode, I would really appreciate a review on whatever podcast platform you are listening to this on. This helps to get the message out there to men and therefore encourage and inspire them to level up their life. So without further ado, this is the Modern Warrior Podcast. I am your host, Gavin Meenan. Thank you for tuning in. So Will, you help men become the best possible versions of themselves. Can you tell me about a time when you weren't exactly the best version of yourself and what did your life look like at that point? Mm. Yeah. First of all, thanks for having me on. And uh, I love I love telling the story. So the, the time that most comes to mind is, uh, I think it was in the year 20, 2012, 2012, in fall of, of that year, um, I was a very different version of myself than I am now. So about 10 years ago, I was 50 pounds heavier. Um, I was in a, in, in a dead end relationship, um, where children were not a possibility. Uh, I was on the verge of getting fired from my job. It was about to happen maybe about a month from there. And I was, I, you know, I was going nowhere with kind of Peter Pan dreams that I wasn't really following through with. Like I kind of go to my corporate job during the day and I guess, you know, not do a great job, um, in part because I ended up not in the position that they hired me for. And then I would kind of half-heartedly pursue my uh, quote-unquote dreams at night in a relationship that that was not fulfilling for me and wasn't taking me in the direction of being a husband and a father that I actually kind of believed, um, and not without reason, that I was kind of trapped in. And so it seemed that no matter where I went, and I was surrounded by feminized men being led by their wives and girlfriends living in San Francisco, California, where that's just kind of what you do, embedded deep in liberal values. And... Um, yeah, I was, it was a, a really, really bad spot for me. Um, and I can remember that moment very clearly of feeling so trapped. Um, and ultimately I was only trapped by myself, but I was trapped by the limitations of the questions that I wasn't answering and, um, and not knowing the answers and not knowing the truth of the answer just kind of kept me pinned in place very quietly frustrated and, and slowly going crazy. I think I would say. 
What were some of those difficult questions that you had to ask yourself? I believed at the time that I, as a man, and my desires as a man were bad or broken, and that therefore I had to serve women even at the expense of myself. That was that was just the world that I lived in, the beliefs that I held at the time. Now, look, there's a way that men and women can serve each other, right? And I believe in healthy relationships, we do serve each other. But there's a there's a larger, may not even say theological question about how how do we orient the relationship between men and women? Do we believe, for example, that women have been victims for all of history, and as a result of women being victims, men have to bow the knee to women? That's the, essentially the theology of feminism. The theology of feminism is that women have been, and this is actually um, the definition of radical feminism. If you look it up on Wikipedia, it says a trans historical phenomenon that is the model for all other forms of oppression. So the theology of radical feminism is that women have been oppressed for all of history, trans historical, and as a result, men need to make restitution um, by sacrificing themselves, their desires, their happiness, their masculinity. And so I actually, I actually believed that. I think I probably could have articulated it in words. I was definitely living it. And so I wasn't asking the question, is this legitimate? Is this actually real? Is there any validity to this? And there isn't, but that was one of the limitations of the questions. I, I didn't recognize the theology, you might say, that I was living under. And that was that was one manifestation. Now, I don't want to put it all on on feminism, by the way. I had my own bad habits and my own bad beliefs and my own lack of having proved myself to myself and my own lack of discipline. So I don't want to say that's entirely why, but that was a big that was a big component of it. You had a rock rock bottom there at some point. And what did what did yeah. that look like? I mean, it, it would have been um it wouldn't when 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 I got uh let go from my job. That was a that was a real moment uh, for me. Now, like at the at the at the I guess as a party, kind of like a going away party. Like twenty people came and they they felt really bad about it, including the CEO of the company and the president, the vice president. They were all there. Like it was kind of breaking the heart that I was leaving, but still, it was it was apparent that you know whatever uh, I had been hired to do, I had not been successful at doing at, at doing and and that was a real moment like, whoa, like I went to a, a pretty great school and, uh, you know, I was raised to perform quite highly in, in academic endeavors and, and in the corporate environment and to have let, gosh, as I think back, like every aspect uh, now of myself that I take pride in as a man, they were all broken. <laughs> I was in very poor physical health. I was in an inverted relationship. I had just gotten let go of my job. I wasn't, you know, following through on all the things that I said that I wanted to do. Yeah, that was, that was, I was pretty much rock bottom. I, bottom. I wasn't like addicted to any substances or anything like that, but it was a real kind of crisis moment that like, okay, well, what am I going to do about this? This is not what was intended. So what did you do about that? What happened after the redundancy? Yeah. Or was, was it, was it redundancy or was it, were you fired? I was, I was fired. Like it wasn't, it wasn't a get out of here. You're fired kind of thing. It was that, um, it was that I had come on board to do a consumer facing job. And then the business immediately transitioned into uh, business to business facing. So I didn't know how to do the job that they had hired me to do. So I just kind of bounced around within the organization out like the, cause the job that they hired me to do didn't exist until they finally just realized we should probably let this guy go because he's not be able to do what we hired him for. And so that was very difficult. So everyone felt really bad about it, but nonetheless, like, 
you know, I can still look back and say there were ways that I wasn't showing up. So what did I, what did I do? Well, the first thing I did was like, I better start getting myself in shape uh, because I realized I would have a little bit of time on my hands and, uh, and a little bit of a ability to do that. So that was literally Just, the first thing. But yeah, go ahead. Was, was that like an instant reaction or was there a lingering period there of maybe feeling like a victim, feeling sorry for yourself, having a bit of a self-pity party, or was it the next morning? get up and you're in the gym. I, I, th I, I don't remember having a self pity party. Um, uh, yeah, no, I, I don't remember having a self pity party at all. I think, I think it was, it kind of landed as, as just a wake up call, mm -hmm. um, for me, because I think part of it also was that I didn't realize how bad off I was like, okay, so I got fired from a job, you know, that I had not been, that I hadn't been enjoying for a while. Um, and so it wasn't, it wasn't like I took, I took a step back and looked at my life like, wow, I'm a mess. Now I have some time in my hands, time to, time to start working on getting in shape. And as I look back on it now, I can see that like my whole life was completely upside down. And, you know, I think I was, uh, I think I was spared that realization. Okay. So that process from getting your body in shape, what led on from that point? what led to that or what happened after that? So, yeah. So you're, you're getting your body in shape. So what was the next part of that process for you? Mm -hmm. Where did that bring you to? So that, that took place over a few months and then it was very strange because I started, I started traveling a bit, uh, across the country to spend time with various members of my family. So I traveled to, I was living in San Francisco at the time. So I traveled to, um, San Diego to spend time with my dad and his wife. I traveled up to uh, Tahoe to spend time with my aunt and uncle. I think I went up to Seattle to see my sister and I traveled some other places to sort out some other, I traveled to Vegas for my cousin's birthday. And so it was this very odd summer basically of taking weekend trips to go and spend time with various members of my family that I hadn't done before. And, um, and really not really work things out because things weren't bad, but to kind of reestablish the bonds of relationship. Um, and I noticed that at the time, like, okay, this is really odd. Like, and it's not like I planned it that way. It's like these opportunities presented themselves kind of one after another to sort out things with my family. And then when that process was done in, uh, so, so the, the rock bottom for me was, you know, October, November, December of 2012 when that, pro and then I was traveling to visit my family, you know, over spring and summer, following year. So we're into 2013. And then in September of 2013, I just, I went on the mankind project, new warrior training adventure weekend men's initiation, which was an enormous, enormous turning point for me. And I look back on the previous nine months as really setting me up to go into that experience and get as much out of it, knowing that my relationships were sorted out, that I had a solid base of my family to progress from. So I could go into this completely unfamiliar world and, um, and experience the begin, some of the beginnings of, and practice of, of what I know about what it means to be a man today. So why was that the defining experience in your life? Uh, the mankind project, the new warrior training adventure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, a couple different reasons. So one reason is because, uh, Western culture lacks male initiation. Uh, and, and I think of initiation as there's this switch inside of a man's brain, a boy's brain that is meant to be flipped by initiation. Now, initiation is when a boy accomplishes uh, a, a, a task that he could fail at 
with significant consequences. And when he accomplishes the task, he is recognized by other men in the circle as you are now a man and you are now capable of, of shouldering the responsibilities of our village or of our tribe or, or of our community. You know, uh, the, the boy has to complete it. He can fail at it potentially with disastrous consequences leading up to and including his life uh, traditionally through time, not so much today, but uh, we don't have those initiation rituals anymore. So boys develop adult male bodies without men ever telling them you are a man. And so we drive these adult male bodies around with essentially boy psychology. So going in to be initiated flipped that switch. It's like, oh, wow, I have now been recognized as a man by men that I admire. I better live up to that promise. Like this is real. This really happened. It landed in me. And another reason why that was so powerful was during the course of the weekend, so many different men, there must've been 50 different guys on the retreat and, and, um, you know, a significant number of staff members as well, hearing so many different guys share at all different stages of life. So, you know, guys as young as 22 and as old as in their seventies, sharing the things that they carry the things that hurt, their defeats, their losses, their griefs, and seeing that, you know, this guy that I would look over there who shows up in the Mercedes with the flashy watch and all that stuff, you know, some successful doctor to discover that like, yeah, maybe he's on his third marriage and he's struggling with alcoholism. And the man that I would evaluate as having quote unquote, everything that I would want, he has his own struggles. And that young fit, awesome dude, you know, with the tan who looks like, you know, you know, Brad Pitt and whatever, whatever early Brad Pitt movie is like, yeah, no, that dude has some stuff going on as well. And to recognize that they're very fit, very physically competent men that have this emotional depth and men with real emotional depth that want to learn from the fit and competent men and how much we have to teach each other as men was a big awakening for me about the breadth of the masculine experience that I think has been hidden from me and hidden from so many men. So with those two things together, it's like, this is what it means to be a man. This is what it means to be me, for me to be a man. This is what I have to learn from other men around me. I would say that that was that, that was the weekend that sent me on the trajectory that led me here today. Do you think that a lot of men are still in hiding or are they beginning to come out of this hiding place in society today? I would say, um, yes, hiding. Um, but as long as we define hiding a couple different ways. So there's hiding as in hiding in the basement or hiding playing video games, right? Um, hiding, you know, obesity is a way to hide. Um, so is being skinny, like being too weak is a way that men hide. Because if you're, if you're overweight and you're really skinny, you're essentially invisible. To be a, a, a fit, confident man is to be very visible and to be seen by people. And so that's a mode of hiding. But I think that there's another mode of hiding that men do in posturing is that they, they hold themselves up to be, you know, King Chad, alpha guru male. And I think that's a component of hiding as well. And, um, the reality is both these kinds of men that are hiding are, they need each other. They have a lot of things to teach each other. And, and I think that's, um, very challenging to men's pride because they want to believe that I don't need other men, whether they believe that they should hide in the basement or whether they should hide you know, flexing in front of the mirror or whatever, like they, those two guys actually have a lot to learn from each other, but that would mean that no man is complete in himself, which is a sacrifice of pride, which a lot of men have real trouble with. So yes, I do think men are hiding, but I think they hide in, in cr creative ways. Yeah. <laughs> and it's so easy to hide these days because is anyone ever checking in with you? Do you, do you have genuine friends and connections who will have your back and 
you know, knock on your door when they haven't heard from you in a couple of days, or call you out in your bullshit when they see that you're uh, practicing some sort of uh, behavior that is going to be detrimental to your manhood, your masculinity, or to your life in general. Mm-hmm. So there's a, a huge lack of that happening, and th- a lot of people being quite defensive these days. Yes. Yeah. Well said. Well said. And and it's people are busier than ever, and so there's reason not to reach out. You know how and how many people are we connected to through social media, Telegram, or whatever? Like I can't possibly be monitoring my social connections with the thirty or forty guys that I that I interact with regularly online and so it's easy it's easy to get overlooked especially if we don't know how to speak up for what we need and i I think a lot of that is and this has been discussed by so many other people is we're not actually supposed to be living the way that we are we can't actually sustain the number of social media connections that we have in any meaningful way and the tragedy is since 2020 so many of us are isolated from our physical communities because we have very deep differences in perspective from the people we've lived around for our whole lives And so we reach out to social media to connect with like-minded people, which is great. Praise God and hallelujah. But it's so easy to connect with so many different people that the connections can only be, while they're meaningful and they feel very real, they only go to a certain depth, which is why we end up feeling so stretched because there's so many different guys to check in on. And we fall through each other's cracks all the time. Um, And I think more and more men are noticing that and beginning to establish either an in-person community that they can rely on, whether through a church or a club, or also establish smaller and smaller circles of men through social media that are really bonded to each other and and know to check in with each other more regularly. Yeah. Yeah, I agree, man. Those like-minded men are very difficult to find in your general area, usually. Yeah. And and the social media does present us with the opportunity to connect with those like-minded men. And I've connected with so many on this podcast. And it's opened up my mind and it's challenged me and my thought process and my behaviors too. And I'm thankful for them. But there's not enough of it happening. I mean, I, I live in Ireland. So for a man to have friends or connect to other men here in Ireland, it usually requires drinking alcohol at the weekend in, in the pub or snorting cocaine up your nose with your friends at the pub, which is all absolute nonsense and bullshit and again yeah. another way of hiding so what I find is a lot of men want to leave that life behind of leaving those behaviours those habits behind and move forward towards something more meaningful in their lives into the more masculine spirit of course uh, leading their lives with, with a more defined purpose but the sacrifices you need to leave those friends behind and the sacrifice ultimately is you're going to step into a very lonely space for a period of time because it's just you. Did you experience that? The a lonely kind of space. Yeah, we call it the void. So when you're leaving this life behind that you've been associated with for potentially all your life, this way of living, this these behaviors, these habits, these friends, these connections, this relationship that you're in as well, you leave all that behind and you step into this void, and it's quite lonely and it's a very challenging place to be because. You've got all the temptations of going back to your friends, going back to your old ways, that sort of comfort of feeling like you're part of a tribe, whilst at the same time understanding that that's not where you need to be or that's not where you need to go in order to live a more meaningful life. So did you experience that in your journey or how did you navigate it? 
I, I did in my own way. Um, so we left off of the story in September 2013 when I discovered the New Warrior training adventure. And so at that point, I found my way into men's groups, so weekly men's groups where I just meet with a group of men uh, once a week. And I, I found a, a therapist, a, a man, who ended up running the men's group. So for about a two-year period from you know 2014 into 2015, I would sit with the men's group, um, you know, six to eight guys on Monday night, facilitated by the therapist, and then I would see the therapist on Thursday. So I would go back on Thursday. So I'd go back and forth between those two for weeks, and that was um, that was a, a process of bucketing, of really draining my own swamp, you know, and being in the crucible of being around other men to share what's going on with me and being accountable for it. And then when I was stuck, taking it to the therapist and being able to pry it all loose. And so doing that uh, over the course of about two years is what helped me find the strength to liberate myself from that dead end kind of relationship that I was in. And I ended that. And as a result of ending that relationship, I was finally freed up to do something that I had been working towards for at that point, 15 years, which, to, which was to try and backpack around the world. So uh, follow about nine months after the breakup in March of 2016, I sold everything I owned, car, furniture, got, got rid of all of it and uh, kept a bunch of boxes in storage and put a carry-on size backpack on my shoulder and then left uh, San Francisco where I was living and said goodbye. I, what I say is I pushed all in with my life. I put it all on the table and said goodbye to all the people in my life, like not intending to be gone forever. I thought that I would be gone for much less time than I actually ended up being gone. But yeah, that was kind of my void. But it, was, it wasn't a void where I had to say goodbye from every, to everyone and still be in my everyday place. I just thrust myself out there into the world. It's like, okay, figure it, figure it out, Will. And, uh, and I did. So that was my void. So I was, I guess you could say I was preoccupied during, during my void a little bit. What did that look like? What were, what were your biggest takeaways from that, from that venture? Oh man. So, um, yeah, no, um, my biggest takeaways. Um, so I traveled. I traveled for long enough. This is one of my favorite one of my favorite things about it. I traveled for long enough that um, when most people travel, they go to a place for um, a couple weeks, and during that couple weeks, or sometimes for a month, they're still kind of taken by the novelty of the place that they're vid- vis- visiting. Like, oh, look at that tree, and look at that dude over there. You know what I mean? And so, and so, and that's great. And that's why you that's why you travel. I traveled for long enough. Um, I ended up off and on for like four years. I traveled for long enough that the novelty of the places that I had visited wore off and I got to see through the surface appearances of a country, which isn't superficial. It's just like you're taking in the environment at a low resolution before you begin to see it in higher resolution. So I traveled for long enough to be able to see through the, the light side of the country, which is presented by novelty to the shadows of the countries that I visited as well, to see through the dark side of the country. Now, that doesn't mean that I had to necessarily go to the dark parts of town to see it, but if you learn to look at any country, the struggles that every country is facing will be presented on the surface if you know what you're looking for. And that was very, very powerful for me. I did. I went to places like China, where I spent a couple months in 2018, and I went to India, where I traveled for six months as well. And And those are if you want to go to places on earth that are the least like the, like the West, like Europe and America, you go to India and China and there's not a big tourist bubble there either. So what I really got to see is I got to see the, the dark side of the world 
And rather than turning me off to the world, it created this feeling of compassion in me because growing up in America, we're saturated with propaganda about how America is the worst place on earth, right? It's almost hard to escape. Like some people say it's the greatest place on earth. We could talk about that separately. It's like, this is the worst place on earth. We're terrible oppressors destroying the world and all that stuff. It's like, okay, I'm going to travel and see for myself. Well, I traveled and I saw for myself that a lot of these countries around the world have very, very serious problems, very serious problems with corruption and pollution and, you know, uh, and oppression that have nothing to do with the United States at all. So I got to see past the propaganda about the world and see that every country on earth has a shadow, just like every person has a shadow and every country has a light side as well. Instead of the picture that I was told, which is that America and the West are the shadow of the whole world and the rest of this world is this happy, shiny, like kumbaya kind of planet. It's not like that at all. And so my big, my big takeaway from the experience was to have a better understanding of where America and Europe fit into the global uh, conversation and how essential it is. I, what I say is that um, not every country in the world needs to be like America, but the world needs a country like America. Uh, and how how very lucky I was to be born in a nation uh, with the values that I that that America does have. And so to get that balanced perspective on the world, I think is probably the most valuable thing I walked away with. Instead of just real quick, instead of what a lot of people do from America in particular is they'll travel to Europe and they'll look at Europe like I've traveled. I went to Europe and like, well, why can't America be more like Europe? They have wine on the sidewalk and they have all these liberal social policies. It's like they're two very different, different places. Yeah. I was actually taken back when you said America is the worst place in the world. I thought you were going to say the opposite, that you just, you did mention it there as well, that it was the greatest place in the world, a land of opportunity and... Yeah, all that. that comes, so, that is, 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 but is, is this the is this the the dark versus the the bright side of America? But the darkness is being is being spoken about or being exposed a bit more now. Is that is what what's happening there? Yeah, I think um, so. Every every country, just like every person, makes trade offs, right? So, um, so in America, it is the it is it has been probably less so now the land of opportunity, that, but that opportunity comes at a very high cost. So it's generally understood within America that there is nothing that can bind essentially a, 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 a young person's decision, not your family, not your religion, not your tradition, not your community, none of those things. If you grew up in small town America, you can leave your family behind and go to the big city and try and make it, and your family will still love you. Now, other places in the world, if you grew up in a small town with your family, your tradition, all your values, and you decide to leave, in many countries around the world, your family will consider you dead to them. Like, where are you going? You're not allowed to leave. That's a very real thing. In America, it is understood in our blood and bones that nothing can bind your free choice to make these decisions. Now, that sounds really good and it creates a lot of opportunity, but it comes at a very high cost of isolation and this level of independence where you are forced to perform on your own and we have a very shallow social safety net for a lot of people. You know, for example, healthcare is a great example. If you don't have health insurance and you fall through the cracks with that and you have a you have a major injury, God forbid, the price to that to the individual can be very, very high to pay for that. And so that's the trade-off. Um, and we can have a whole debate about the healthcare industry separately, but I'm just using that as an illustration that yes, it is the land of opportunity, but being the land of opportunity, you have to make a trade-off. And so America has made one set of trade-offs. There are other countries in the world that make other sets of trade-offs. 
And to be able to see and appreciate that as different ways of solving the problem of civilization, and one is not inherently better than the other, depending on what your desired outcome is. If you desire to create a country that produces a lot of material prosperity, then America is great at doing that. If you want to produce a country that produces a strong culture of people who mutually identify with each other and preserve heritage and traditions down through the generations, America will not be good at doing that. There will be other countries in the world good at doing that. And every country gets to make that decision. So the countries will choose a culture that optimizes towards their goals. And it's not a conscious process, but understanding that different goals are all valid is really, really important. Mm -hmm. Does that answer your question? Yeah, definitely, man. Very interesting. I asked you what the biggest takeaways were when you went traveling. Uh, just rephrase that slightly and ask you, what did you take from your travels that you now use or implement or did implement in your life back home mm -hmm. as a man? Um, awesome, awesome questions. <clears throat> so I discovered and got comfortable with the fact that I'm very much the sort of man who like throws himself off the cliff and figures it out on the way down. Like I just did that so many times. Like, it seems like a good idea. Let me do this. Oh, okay. Now we're falling and I have to figure this out. So I got real comfortable with the fact that that's kind of, um, that's kind of how I am. And, um, and so when I feel that experience of trying new things, I just throw myself into it and give it a shot. So that self-knowledge was really, really important. Um, I also learned the importance of caring for my stuff. I didn't travel with a lot. It was a carry on sized backpack, 35, 35 liters, which isn't a lot. Um, and so I learned how important it is to buy the right gear and take great care of it because I didn't want to get into, I don't want to just carry around 80 liters worth of stuff and stuff it all in the sack. Like I wanted to make sure to have that. Um, I also learned how to listen to and how to appreciate different kinds of people because traveling meet all, meet all kinds of people from locals to people on the road, um, young people, old people, and they all have fascinating stories and given enough time, um, people enjoy sharing them that they feel like you're a, a, a safe and worthwhile, worthwhile person to share them with. And so I use that every day in my podcast is learning to listen and accept the, the billions of different stories that exist on the planet that are all, are all equally valid. So that's just, you know, some of the examples, um, of what I put into practice every day. Is there a particular story that sticks with you from that time? Uh, from an individual or from something I did or? Either, either, either or. Yeah, <laughs> many. Um, but one that sticks the most. Yeah, so the, so the, one, the one that's, um, uh, you, you encouraged me to let it fly, so I'll just tell this one. So um, I was down in Peru and uh, I had, um, I was traveling through the Sacred Valley which is outside, uh, maybe an hour or so outside of, of PSAC, Peru, I believe. And uh, I was there, um, the girl I was seeing at the time, and we uh, were staying at like a, like a hotel and we came down the hotel at breakfast and we were sitting across the table from this other couple and talking to them. And I got to talking to the guy and she got to talking to the girl. And so they decided that they were going to go to the markets and I decided to spend the day, the day hanging out with the guy. So he and I uh, went for a walk and we're hanging out and we were, we're getting lunch and chatting. And he, um, he told me, uh, that he had, uh, prior to coming to Peru, he had been gay and, uh, he was, he was from Argentina 
and um, he had just come off of a three-week retreat where um, it was 21 days of fasting and seven days of no food and seven days of no food and no water. So a 21-day retreat, seven days of no food and no water, and then an additional 14 days of no food. Now, I had no idea. I had no idea you could go seven days without water. That does not sound like something that appeal. I was always, you know, like, I was always told you can only go for three days, but apparently this retreat center, you know, your activity level is low enough that you could do a seven day, what's called a dry fast. And he said he had come into that experience and, um, he had been prior to that experience. He had been, um, like leather gay and showed me photos of marching in the pride parade in Buenos Aires, Argentina. And, uh, he had come out of that experience, that 21 day retreat and, uh, was no longer, was no longer gay, no longer homosexual. And now I know for a fact that he's married with children. And so, um, that was, that was one of those things that, um, you said, let it fly. So, uh, you know, I'm smacked here. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. He said the hardest thing that he ever had to do was come out to his friends that he was no longer gay. Uh, yeah. I'm lost yeah. for words. How, how the yeah. fuck? How, the, yeah. how can you go through, uh, what was that? Like two weeks, three weeks? It was three weeks of no food and then seven days was no food and no water. I didn't, I mean, that was, yeah. Well, was there something else going on there? I don't think so. I, I think it was literally just, you just sit there and, you know, think, or maybe there's meditations or something like that. Yeah. That is mental. So yeah, you, you've stayed in touch with this guy, I gather, because you know uh, the fact that he's married with kids now. Yeah. Yeah. I have to message him on WhatsApp now. Did you, so how did you respond when you heard that story? First of all, do you think it was <laughs> just as bonkers as I think it is now? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I was kind of marveling because he had just told me essentially like three things that are supposed to be impossible. Like you didn't drink water for seven days. That's impossible. Number one, like you, you were no longer gay. That's supposed to be impossible. And, um, and I guess in a sense, like coming out to his friends that he wasn't gay anymore, he, that that was the hardest thing he ever had to do. Like just having to imagine that. Right. So yeah. 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 Go on, it's on the reverse. Yeah. 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 It's, a, I mean, it's, it's a, this is, this, this is the thing is like you talk to people for long enough, you know, get to know people. They, people have incredible stories. Like the average person you walk past on the street, you got no idea. You know, we, we walk around in a cloud of, you know, uh, I don't mean this in a negative way necessarily, but judgments and evaluations of surface appearances is how we are, but we don't actually know what that other person is carrying. And in the same way, you know, when I went on this men's retreat that I mentioned earlier, that yeah, I had formed all these judgments of all the men around me, but to see what they were actually carrying was like, wow, there's so much to humanity that we, that we lack the opportunity to share. But when given the chance, all sorts of incredible things come out. Amazing. I'm still lost for words. I, I don't know what to say. <laughs> I don't know what to say about that story. Uh, it's just incredible. And it, it's interesting. Like when you were telling me the story, about um, this guy who was gay, I thought that this was going to sort of transition into the type of work you do to get today in terms of yeah. um, defeminizing men, men if that's the right term, but uh, helping men become more masculine. So, how did you begin that process in 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 the type of work you do today? I know you went through this process of the men's retreat, the men's group, the men's work. Obviously, you went traveling. So, the, is it a matter that travel ended and then? you've sort of ticked that box off in your life and now you're asking yourself another question as to what's next. 
Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good way of putting it. Well, actually, I had been studying and trying to understand what it means to be a man for 20 years before I started the Renaissance of Men. And that began when I was in college around the year 2000, because I took a class on psychology, uh, on Jungian psychology. And as part of that class, we learned about what the Lord of the Rings has to say about masculinity. And of course, it's a great series of movies. They were coming out at the time. And I realized in that moment that you know, I had been brought up, uh, not brought up, but I had absorbed from my environment that what it means to be a man is like pizza and beer and football. And I was, I was, you know, nothing wrong with any of those things, but I was always in, I was always very thoughtful and reflective and I enjoyed writing and, and stuff like that. So I thought, oh, clearly I'm broken as a man. And then, excuse me. And then I, I took that class and realized, no, I'm not broken at all. Well, wait a minute, if I'm not broken at all, and here are these guys that are, you know, living very differently from me. What do I have to learn from them? How can I embody some of what they embody? And I started reconstructing my, my, I guess you might say my persona, my psychology bit by bit, which took many years because I was doing it on my own. Then I discovered the Mankind Project in 2013. And then I got introduced to the whole worldwide kind of men's movement. Then I left to travel. And while traveling, I discovered the Manosphere. And I realized the conversation is so much more complicated than I realized. So now I have all these sources to draw from to be able to begin sort of reforming myself as a man, reading the books and watching the videos and doing the practices and exercising and putting myself in like legitimately dangerous situations, traveling, you know, like sailing, like ocean sailing and mountain climbing and stuff like that, where it's like, you don't get to negotiate with nature when you're in a storm in the middle of the Pacific ocean on a 35 foot sailboat, you know, which I was for, for two, I wasn't alone. I had people on the boat with me. It's like, you don't give me like call time out on the storm. Like, Hey, I'm kind of scared. Like that not work that way. So, and I think a lot of men just as an aside, they really need an encounter with danger. Like, and how you, how do we even begin to do something like that? Right? Like our lives are worth too much to us to really put ourselves in, at risk of, of, of being in danger. And, and I get that, but I think men are starving for it which is why I think barbell training sort of replicates some of that combat sports as well. But that's another conversation. So, so then I, 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 I not only was reading, but I was putting all these things into practice. And so then when I returned to the United States in February of 2020, that's when COVID happened and the lockdowns hit. And I was alone in this apartment. I had just moved back to the States. I didn't own anything at the time. Um, literally just my backpack. And I was able to pick up a mattress like the day the lockdowns happened. That was it. And then I found my way into an online community uh, for Alexander Cortez. Are you familiar with Alexander yeah. Cortez? Yeah, cool. yeah, awesome. Yeah, I know. Yeah, so I found my way into, he started a Telegram channel called The Inner Circle. And so I was one of the first hundred guys in The Inner Circle. And so I started sharing my perspectives on men and masculinity from my travels. Now, the world had just locked down. So here I am bringing tales of the world outside of people's apartment, right? And, um, and it was all very well received. And, and then I wrote a blog post, uh, called, uh, to, to lose the world and gain my soul on my travel blog about how I wouldn't be silenced in the face of the George Floyd riots and all that stuff that I'm going to speak my mind because I've seen the world. And then that vi that blog post went viral. And so I realized, wow, maybe people actually really want to hear what I have to say. So from the inner circle and from that blog post out of that, I started the Renaissance of men, um, to help, uh, because I originally wanted to be a psychotherapist. My plan for traveling was to come back to the United States, go to school to be a psychotherapist and open an office here in Phoenix and work with men and have all the photos of me doing this stuff behind, you know, like around the world and guys looking like, okay, this guy is safe to talk to because he knows what it means to be a man and I can communicate about emotion. 
Well, instead of that, instead of opening an office here in Phoenix, I decided to become a coach and serve men around the world, which is, which I think is far more, far more needed and let therapists work with clinical depression, clinical anxiety, things like that. Because I think the lessons that I have to pass on now, I can pass them on to men uh, who are in need of different things than, than deep intensive therapy. Yes, I get you. Tell us about this blog post. Why did it go viral? Um, I think I think it went viral in, in part because I was uh, part of some men's communities where the leaders of those communities shared it. But I think it said, uh, and I'll send you I'll send you a link to the blog post so you can yes, read it. Um, I think it said a lot of things that men wanted to hear. Is that here was a guy. Again, we're, but this is in this is in 2020, right? Where it's like if you breathe the wrong way, you get accused of racism, right? And so it's like, okay, okay. So say you want to accuse this is me. Say you want to accuse me of racism. I've just spent four years traveling to all these countries around the world. This is all the things that I've done with my life, and I did them because they were right, not because anyone was telling me to. And I never talked about them. I never virtue sig- virtue signaled about them. I just did them because they were right. And so the theme of the article is if you're going to accuse me of racism, that charge is not going to stick. You're welcome to try, but you will fail. And this is what I have to say, and I will not be silent. And I I think that really resonated with men who weren't aware of like, well, how do we respond to this new political environment we're in, where if we move or breathe the wrong way, we get accused of something that we don't know how to respond to simply because of the color of our skin. And that I had the experience that I had built up over many years of being like, yeah, no, you can't actually say that about me. Because for example, one of the things that racists don't do is backpack through India alone for six months. That's not what racists do. They don't do that. <laughs> they would be there for six minutes if they made it, if they made it at all. Right. But, um, as well as a bunch of other things that I'd done. And I, so I think it really touched a nerve, um, in a good way with men who are like, okay, here's, here's a guy actually can, that can speak for all the things that I want to say, but is standing on, uh, firmer foundation. I think that's probably why. Yeah. You basically had the balls to say what they didn't have the balls to say. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I had the, I had the balls and I, and I had the backing because I think a lot of men, they have the balls to say it, but, um, but then accusations start flying at them and they've got nothing to, nothing to back it up with. To fall fall back on. Yeah, exactly. I get it. You haven't, uh, remained silent since then either with many other topics. I have not. What? <laughs> I fucking love it, man. <laughs> Please do not be silenced. So, my question is: that what are what's the what's the biggest thing that people are trying to silence you on or with at the moment? And what do you uh, continually to refuse to be silenced about? Mm, that's a great question. Um, the thing that people are most trying to silence me on right now is I wrote a series on Instagram called Obesity, Christianity, and Relationships, a three-part a three-part series on my profile. And in that profile, I wrote about obesity from a Christian perspective because in, in September 2020, I was baptized Christian. It's been a very, uh, gosh, transformative experience for me to say the least. Uh, it's a separate conversation for sure. But I, I wrote about um, fitness and obesity from within a Christian perspective. And the point that I was making is that uh, within, from a Christian perspective, obesity is a sin, not because of gluttony. Uh, that Yes, also because of that, not because of sloth and gluttony, but for a bigger reason. And the bigger reason is that men and women are meant to serve each other in relationship. And we cannot, we cannot 
carry out our godly duties as husbands and wives, um, mothers and fathers and parents, if our bodies aren't up to the task. And one of the tasks that we are called to be up to, to, be up to is serving each other in a loving relationship in terms of our sexual availability. And the, and the point that I make is sexually desirable is sexually available. And a lot of women are very upset at me for suggesting that what they do with their bodies and the fitness that they maintain is essential, not just for them and their and and being mothers and for taking care of their kids and quote unquote health, but also for being available to, to serve their husband's sexual needs. And women hate it. They hate, they're very mad and they will send me messages like, what about hormonal problems and menopause and women try and blah, blah, blah. And I've, I've gotten so much feedback about that. And, you know, the thing is, People will say it's not diet and exercise. It's not diet and exercise. And you talk to anyone who lo lost a significant amount of weight, they all say the same thing: it was diet and exercise. You know. And so, you know, do I say that I'm trying to? They're trying to silence me over that. I don't think they're trying to silence me over that. But I, I think that I get a lot of very negative feedback of saying that, like, no, women, this is part of your responsibility as being wives. You have to hold yourself to a higher standard. And no, it's not okay. And for reasons other than just gluttony and sloth, which should land, but they don't. And to be, I hold men to that same standard. You know, it's not, it's not an, it's not an unequal weights and measures as both men and women are meant to serve each other in that way. And so if a man can't serve his wife, for example, by being a man who embodies a man worthy of her respect, he is also failing. So it's just the different ways that we serve each other. It's not saying that men are held to one standard or women to another. It's not, it's not that at all. We have the same standard, but for different reasons. Yeah. They're uh, sending this, this DM as they're eating their second bag of Cheetos on the couch, going through their uh, Netflix binge. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's, it's, and I can tell instantly when I get a, when I see a comment, if it's more than like, if, if it's on Instagram, if it's more than like three or four sentences long, I just, you know, it's not, it's, it's yeah. not a reasonable. I've been there. Just ignore it. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I'm not wasting another 30 seconds reading through the rest of this. Yeah. Uh, let it go. Uh, that's not the only thing women have been trying to silence you over, though, isn't it? It's the leading question. <laughs> is, yeah. there so, is there something else? I'm pretty sure, yeah. Well, in terms of uh, masculinity, the toxic masculinity, okay. uh, feminism. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, I mentioned earlier the theology of feminism. Mm -hmm. And the theology of feminism says that women have been oppressed by men through all of history. And so therefore men have to bow the knee to women, um, in every, in every possible way. And the thing is, is I don't know that a lot of women con would be able to consciously articulate that, but that's, that's how it plays out. And so what happens is when a man starts to assert himself, starts to, um, starts to stand up straight, take up space, take up the, you know, uh, take care of his body, speak with a clear voice, things like that. Um, it starts, these red lights start going off in, in women's minds. Like we have to put that man back in his place. And that shows up over and over again. If you watch it, you can see it. And so um, I've experienced it. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And I think probably every man listening has, you know, when he starts to speak confidently about something, he gets called arrogant or you're so egotistical or whatever. And the way that women do that because they can't physically overpower us as they they shame. That's that's women's power is to control men and each other with shame. Now, the remedy for shame, and I have a, I have a whole talk that I've done about this that I'm going to turn to a YouTube video. The remedy for shame is honor. 
And so if you as a man, and this is, I think, really why the, um, why the to lose the world and gain my soul post did, uh, did so well, is because I was writing from a place of honor. What I was effectively saying in the post is, you can't shame me because I have my honor. And no one has been harder on me about maintaining and claiming my honor than I have. I've been very hard on myself. So I could stand firmly and say, you can throw shame at me and it's going to fall right off because I've conducted myself honorably. Um, But I think for a lot of men who haven't yet had the opportunity to claim honor, cultivate honor, have it be uh, bestowed upon them by an elder, they're not sure how to stand up to the shame. And so it's very difficult that encounter with the enemy. Now, ultimately, shame is powerless over us but shame causes physical pain. Like the feeling of being shamed, like it, it's a way of causing pain in someone without touching them. And so it shuts men down. And so I experience a lot of that um, coming at me, but I see it for what it is. So I just kind of like Neo in the matrix of the bull. It's like, yeah, whatever, yeah. <laughs> whatever. <laughs> but I, you know, I, I think all men can have that experience if they work to, if they work to reclaim their honor. And that can be a, a gut-wrenching experience to go through making phone calls, apologizing, you know, rectifying the things that are wrong. It can take a while, but there's no substitute for it. Of thinking and speaking and acting and integrity, there's no substitute for it. What's what's the first step in your opinion of reclaiming or claiming your honor? You talk mm-hmm. about rectifying past situations with people in your life. Is that the first step? It could be. I think I think it depends on the man. Um, I think every man should do um, should do a survey should constantly be doing a survey actually of his own mind of the areas where he's fallen short of the standards that he's set for himself and 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 the and the times in his life and how where that's shown up and so that can be you know maybe yesterday you relapsed and used porn or maybe you're not controlled in your diet or whatever or you broke a word to a brother or that you said you you went through a really brutal breakup and you were a major league asshole about it you know, all things like that. Like I think every man can, can think through his life and, you know, something at work, maybe he stole something, you know, who knows? Like it shows up in all kinds of ways. It doesn't necessarily have to be illegal, but it can be a time that his own conscience convicts him by his own standards that he didn't perform up to being the man that he wanted to be and was capable of being. And I think the first thing that he has to do as a man, especially if it involves other people and if it's reasonable is to pick up the phone and and make the gut-wrenching call to apologize and make it clearly and and succinctly and you don't have to dress it up just like hey you know if, if it's practical like you don't have to call your high school girlfriend you know necessarily i mean i guess depending on how old you are you know or what if something really terrible happened but in general like something that's that's more accessible instead of convenient let's say and to just state it very clearly like hey i'm sorry and, and accept like for, there's this feeling that comes from the heart when you offer a true apology. It's like, it's a, it's true vulnerability because what could come back in that moment is you fucking asshole. I fucking always hated you. I can't believe you, you know, and that's like, oh, that's oof. And, and that's real. And so I don't want to overlook that, but there is a component of that where it's like, you still know that you've apologized and you've given it, you've given it back. And there's a faith component to it as well. The trusting and offering the apology that you won't be sliced to ribbons in the process there is a component of that so that's that's one of the ways that it begins is rectifying the past and then rectifying the present and in terms of your relationship with yourself and then rectifying your current and existing relationships and this can be an enormous process for men to go through very very painful because 
the reasons why we hide from the consequences of our actions is that we're worried about what we're going to lose. And the consequences can be significant. But, and this is where faith again plays such an enormous role. If you subject yourself to the consequences of your actions and you go through that descent into the underworld and find your way back out, you reemerge redeemed with your honor. And that process of doing that descent and return, descent and return is the hero's journey, like Joseph Campbell's The Hero's Journey. You do you can do that again and again in so many different ways. And that turning wheel actually turns the wheel of your life forward to become the man you want to be. And and when you're a man who stands clear in the sun with your honor, there's nothing like it. Man, that's so beautifully put. What to say? <laughs> I, I love that. <laughs> yeah, this is a this is a personal this is a very personal question because uh, it's something I'm, I've had conversations with men on this podcast about this very topic, and you've mentioned it yourself about becoming a Christian or Christianity. Yeah. Why was that such a significant episode in your life or a significant turn in your life when you brought God into your life? That be the right way to put it. Yeah, I think so. I I'd kind of always had God in my life, but just not the not the not the way that Christianity frames God. I have to think about how to say that, but not the Christian God, but it was God. Anyway, I've always been a man of faith, let's say, going back to even when I was a teenager. And I was even before that I was interested in the paranormal like Bigfoot and Loch Ness monster and stuff like that when I was a little kid. Um, but I had actually spent 30 years, uh, a part of my travels was to go experience many of the religions of the world with an open mind. So as part of that, for example, I went and I did ayahuasca down in Peru and, uh, I went to a, 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 a festival of Hindus, 190 million Hindus, the largest human gathering in, in history. And that was in 2019. I went to a, a Buddhist meditation retreat near Pakistan that in the mountains, 10 hours of meditation for 10 days. I went to the Bodhi tree, which is supposedly where the Buddha attained enlightenment. You know, I went to Sufi temples and stuff like that, uh, mosques, Sufi mosques. And I, I, I've always been very interested. I did all these different new age practices because I always wanted to explore, I guess you might say the inner world and the spiritual world as much as I wanted to explore the physical world. And so I never, I never considered Christianity. I never expected to become Christian, but along the way I did meet some Christians who showed me the, the loving and kind and generous and, and disciplined, uh, but also uh, strong and uh, strong and tender part of the faith. I'm like, this is the first time anyone's spoken to me about Christianity like I'm an adult. And after traveling all these different countries and through all these different practices and seeing a bunch of questions that I had that were unanswered, it's like they're not actually answering these questions. They avoid when I ask this question and then discovering that Christianity answered the question with full throat and clear voice and says, this is why, and this is the promise on the other side. That was when I said, okay, I'm going to get baptized and become a Christian without actually knowing, again, like I said, I tend to throw myself off cliffs and figure it out on the way down. I didn't actually know in the way that I do now what it was that I had signed up for. It was following a calling and trusting my instinct um, without recognizing the significance of it, fully prepared to make the commitment. Like, but, but I don't, I didn't understand it to that degree. It was like, finally, I found something that even hints at the answers that I'm looking for. This is the direction I'm going. And then I got baptized and this whole world progressively over the past two years has begun to open up to me. It's like, this is what I've been looking for all the time. Um, and it's transformed my inner and my outer and my social life and my professional life and my personal life and, and just the best possible way. 
So what were some of these questions and answers that Christianity has offered you or answered for you? Uh, the big one is about evil, the nature of evil. Um, and I have traveled enough and, and studied and read enough to know that evil is a, is a real thing. It exists. And the way that I define evil is uh, people doing bad things because they're bad. They know that what they're doing is wrong and they do it knowing that it's wrong. They do it because it's wrong because they get pleasure from the doing it. So you probably think about like the Jeffrey Epstein's of the world, you know? So, yeah. So those guys, they're not under any illusion that what they're doing is wrong. They're deriving perverse pleasure from the sense of power that gives them essentially is, is I think what's going on there. And so that's evil. And that shows up in all different, all different kinds of ways. It shows up in, uh, in corruption, it shows up in abuse and neglect and, you know, all sorts of awful things that we don't necessarily need to name at all different scales from the micro level of ways that people persecute each other to the macro level of, you know, uh, of groups and, 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 um, and, uh, war and stuff like that. So it, it's, it's everywhere and it's a real thing. And so it, I spent a lot of time in Eastern traditions in the new age and Buddhism and Hinduism and Eastern traditions they think of, they conceive of everything as one. So you think about the yin yang symbol, like the yin yang symbol is dark and light are one whole thing. And any difference between the two is essentially an illusion because it's all one thing. Now I had real trouble with that because, um, you know, for one, it's like, well, the way that it explains that is with karma. I'm like, okay, so you're going to tell a, a little girl who's being, or a little boy who's being sex trafficked that, sorry, kid, it's just your karma to be sex trafficked. Like, you look, try and look a kid in the eye and say that, or, or tell a woman who's being abused or, or a man who's, you know, who, you know, gets mugged brutally on the street. Sorry, bro. It's just your karma. Like that's not satisfying. You can't actually look so it's profoundly, um, it's profoundly cruel to say that to somebody that something that you did in a previous life is why this happened to you. And by the way, that, that, that other person that was their karma to do that to you too. It just, it doesn't make sense. Um, and so if he, so evil is an independent thing with its own independent existence that acts in contradiction to the good that wants to destroy the good. And that's what Christianity talks about. Um, Christianity talks about that's the, that's the nature of Satan and what Satan's trying to do to the good. Ultimately Satan is powerless against good. Um, he's just a created being, not the creator himself, but nonetheless, he still tries and our free will allows us to participate in that. So that answered one of the largest moral questions that I had about the nature of evil in the world. And uh, it's very uncomfortable, um, but it's, it's truer and way truer in my experience than the war, than the everything is one kind of approach. Is Satan dominating at the moment then? Um, no, uh, it just, it appears that way, uh, because what we can't see is that, um, Satan's only has the ability to do what he's allowed to do. And so, uh, so Dante, I think Dante in his, is it the, yeah, I think it was Dante in Inferno, that famous poem, I think portrays Satan as encased in ice and he can't even flap his wings without God's approval because ultimately God is, is, uh, the creator and the ruler over all the heavens and the earth and nothing proceeds without, um, without his will. And so Satan is uh, being permitted to do his thing and people can choose to participate in it all for the purposes of ultimately serving God's glory. And that is an, that is a, an article of faith. And I understand that looking at the world today, it can be very difficult to hold to that article of faith, but, um, God's sovereignty, God being sovereign over his creation, separate and independent from it, 
um, indicates that that is the case and everything that is um, going on is is his will or not out of alignment with his will. And that's a very challenging thing to believe, but it, it also means that Satan is not dominating, that um, it just looks that way until his inevitable defeat. Interesting. What's your argument then? Would it even be an argument or your thoughts even when it comes to the likes of Richard Dawkins or Sam Harris who argue against this this God and tell us all that he doesn't exist, that there's no evidence he exists, and that if he does exist, he's not a very loving God because of all the atrocities that happen in life and in mm. the world. Well, the God that they propose and said is science, which is that, which is essentially that, oh, we're just here. It's all an accident. And, uh, you know, we don't actually know where anything came from because where did everything come from? That's question number one. Where did life come from? That's question two. And where did consciousness come from? That's question three. Now, DNA, there's a, uh, a man named Stephen Meyer, and uh, you can find videos of his on YouTube. Um, the video that comes to mind is called Theistic Evolution. You can look up Stephen Meyer, Theistic Evolution to find more stuff by him. And one of the things that he points out is the DNA molecule itself is so fantastically complex that the idea that DNA would have just randomly evolved by mutation is almost mathematically impossible, almost mathematically impossible. And, and where does, where does consciousness come from? And so the only explanation that science can offer for any of this is like, that's just a bunch of accidents. You know, a fish crawled out of the, a fish with lungs crawled out of the water. And what I say is like, well, it's a good thing the fish didn't get, that one lucky fish with lungs didn't get eaten that day because then we wouldn't be here at all. Or lightning struck us a chemical soup and created life. It's just accidents times infinity is the only answer that, that scientists have. Meanwhile, meanwhile, we all walk around, and I have a YouTube video about this, we all walk around every day as if every moment in our life is full of meaning. And I say, like, when the girl looks at us across from across the room, we, we say, like, is she the one or is she into me? We don't say that has no meaning. We don't look at our lives and say it's meaningless. We feel our lives as having meaning. And so their only argument, to, it, science would say nothing has meaning at all. It's all accidents. Meanwhile, all of us walk around feeling that our lives are full of meaning. And when you take a man and you give his life meaning, that's one of the things that I do in my mentorship is, is the first conversation is, is quite long where I get to understand the narrative of their lives and help them frame where they are in their lives versus uh, where, they, where they've been and where they're going. And suddenly men have a whole narrative and they can see that their life has meaning and the direction they've chosen has meaning. It brings men to life. And so science has drained meaning from everything in an attempt to kill God, and it kills people in the process. So Dawkins, Harris, they have nothing to offer. And I might add, I would love to see Sam Harris and Richard Dawkins going to the Kumbh Mela Hindu Festival, which I mentioned earlier, 100 million, 190 million Hindus, and go set up a stage and say, all of you who believe in God, there's no God. Why is it that they're only preaching to Christians? They don't ever, they don't ever go to India, right? They don't go to Africa and tell them off about their tribal religions. They're only talking to the Christian God because it's a strike against the Christian God. That's exactly, it's not, it's disingenuous to say like, we're trying to disprove God. You're not trying to do that at all. All you want to do is you want to stop Christianity. And the story of that goes back 250 years. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, that goes way back. Yeah. At least 250. Yeah. About that. Um, yeah, man, this has been such a brilliant conversation, man. I've, I've really enjoyed it. I'm definitely going to have you back at some point. 
<laughs> like, thank yeah, you. this has been great. Your your questions are awesome. Yeah, that's good, man. Well, I'm I'm happy uh, that uh, you're able to respond to them very very well, man. I appreciate the value you shared, and of course, you've got a ton more value out there on your YouTube channel and on your Instagram. So, please tell us all where we can find you. Yeah, um, the best place to find me to find Instagram and Twitter and YouTube is on my link tree. So just link tree slash rent of men. And, you know, on Twitter, it's at rent of men, uh, Instagram at rent of men, YouTube at rent of men. And if you want to find out more about my 12 week men's mentorship, where you can help make a lot of this stuff real in your life, you go to rent of men.com slash mentorship. Excellent. Well, I'll pop all those links in the show notes below men. So go and check them out and thank me later. <laughs> so brilliant stuff, man. <laughs> Thank you. Well, uh, until next time. Thank you. Again. Stay safe. Take care, man. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Modern Warrior Podcast. If this episode has added value to your life, please share this episode on your social media platforms so that others too can gain the insight, information, and inspiration that they need in order to move forward in their lives. For the time being, stay strong and keep fighting the good fight.